this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Welcome to Foreign Invader. My name is Conrado Falco III and this is the podcast about the pop culture that is corrupt in American life. Every episode we take a piece of culture that originated in not the United States of America and talk about its impact on our country and our lives. Today we're talking about one of the great, maybe one of the greatest, maybe the greatest action director of all time, John Woo. He started his career in Hong Kong where he made a bunch of movies became a pioneer of both the heroic bloodshed and kung fu genres with movies like A Better Tomorrow, The Killer, and Hard Boiled. Then he came to America where he directed action extravaganzas like Broken Arrow, Face Off, and Mission Impossible 2. To talk about him, I have a very special guest. I am very excited. He's one of my favorite people on the internet. He is a filmmaker, director of movies like Teddy Bomb and Impossible Horror. He has written books about film, including Radioactive Dreams, The Cinema of Albert Pion, and Motern on Motern. He has his own Blu-ray distribution company, Golden Ninja Video, and he is the host of four different movie podcasts. They are The Bay Street Video Podcast, No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, The Star Wars Podcast, and my personal favorite, The Important Cinema Club. I'm talking, of course, about the great Justin DeClue. Justin, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for that great intro. Finally, I have my own podcast intro. Somebody introducing me. <laughs> Did I miss anything? No, that was it. That was all. Too much, I say. Too much. As many people <laughs> would say, oh, you just do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we love about you. Before we get into John Woo, though, I'm going to ask you what I ask every guest that comes on the show, which is where you're from and where did you grow up? Uh, I am from Canada specifically uh, currently i live in toronto canada but when i grew up i grew up in ottawa the nation's capital and also a small french town called castleman which was miserable and i hated it and i moved away when i was uh old <laughs> enough to go to college and have only gone back to visit my mother and to the point that i have forgotten everything about that small town i walked down the street last time i visited i was like was there a water treatment plant like two doors down from us and she's like yep oh, it's been there since we moved here and i was like man i just completely <laughs> wiped that from my brain so your family is French-Canadian then? Yes. French-Canadian, I mean, French, is my first language. Uh, my mom is French, so like we speak French. And when I talk to her in the home, I went to French school, not immersion, just French all the time. English is banned because it's encroaching, like uh, the theme of the podcast, upon, um, you know, the culture, the very little culture that we have in uh, Franco-Ontarian, which is not Quebec, which is different. Oh, Okay, so that's great. That leads me perfectly to my next question, which is, are there any stereotypes or cliches about Canada and maybe even French Ontario that you would like to either confirm or deny? French Ontario stereotypes? I don't really think so. I mean, all of, uh, you know, especially Quebec French, it's kind of like the hillbillies of the French language. Like, we have a lot of slang, and it's very compressed, and it's kind of taken its own um, personality, like, when I had some friends went to France and like the French people there could not understand them. <laughs> like yeah. literally like a simple thing. Like uh, he said that he wanted to buy a chicken sandwich and he was like, poulet. And the guy's like, hmm? He's like, poulet. And sandwich au poulet. And the guy's like, oh, du poulet. And he's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so 
so. Yeah, well, we know that the French are also very finicky about that kind of thing and kind of, you know, jerks about it. Yeah, yeah, the French are jerks. Not Franco-Ontarians, so, but um, yeah. No, all French are jerks. What, what am I saying? <laughs> so this show is about the influence of foreign culture in America because we all know that America has a huge influence on culture of other countries. You know, talk about Canada, that's like... Probably. You mean Canada in the shadow of America? Always being like, please, America, please like what we do. <laughs> exactly. So what would you say was the most American thing about your childhood and growing up in Canada or just living in Canada? The most American thing? Uh, yeah. I mean, my uh, youth was spent in a firm rebellion against everything French Canadian because it was stuffed down my throat so much that I was like, no, I want to speak English. I'm going to... Uh, write in English. I'm going to consume English media. And now I'm like, oh no, French is good. French is good. This is the cultural thing that I can hold on to. And that's mine. And as far as America, <laughs> um, just television. And, you know, that's where all the cool stuff comes from. Like, I couldn't really name anything when I was a kid that was specifically Canadian that wasn't child's television that I really liked. And I mean, that became another one of my passions was Canadian cinema a few years ago. And I really got into it and discovered that basically any cultural bodies don't care about Canadian cinema at all. And like only a few people like try to hold it up and nobody's archiving it because American influences kind of beat down on Canada so much that all we can do is try to make pale imitations that play on CBC, our national broadcaster. And it's like, look, this is good a csi ripoff huh huh you like this right <laughs> that's interesting right because the the most famous like canadian filmmakers kind of go to hollywood eventually eventually yeah i mean you have like people like david cronenberg who have stayed and david cronenberg <laughs> I'm trying to think of, like, <laughs> some other like major filmmakers that are mm -hmm. not specifically quebecois because like quebecois filmmakers are kind of their own separate thing because culturally their their industry supports their filmmakers in a way that Canada does not because they go, why would I go see a Canadian film when I can go see an American one? And then you have Canadian films or Canadian television who are like sweating to appear American because mm -hmm. like, it's a weird like shame. Like we don't want to be set in Canada. Like even now I was watching a great Canadian film called The Kid Detective. Whole Canadian crew funded by Ontario whatever um, in, uh, company, like a new film initiative. And mm -hmm. they try to make it look like it's America. They even have American money. And it's like, why? What are you doing? Right, Has anybody right, in America right. been like, whoa, 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 whoa. This film set in Canada? Turn it <laughs> off. Turn it off. Throw it out. No, no one cares. Exactly. Yeah. And I will say I've also seen The Kid Detective. It's a great movie, so I recommend to everyone who's listening. Oh, great movie, yeah. And there's been, lately though, I've a lot of people have been into Canadian TV shows. A lot of people are talking about... One TV show, Shit's Creek. Yeah, well, but there's also it. the, um, what's the one? Kim's Convenience, I think I heard of some people talk about it. Right, people really like Kim's Convenience as well. Is that a big deal in Canada? Are people like talking about how people love these shows? Uh, Shit's Creek, yeah. I remember people really liked it. I worked at the Academy of Canadian Screen Television, and that was like their crowning glory, like when we did the award show. <laughs> Basically, the Canadian Oscars that nobody watches and plays on the CBC. <laughs> because they nominate movies that have not been released in Canada, that the only people who can see them are, like, like people in the Academy who get screeners. So, like, why right. would the regular person care about what gets nominated if they do not have access to it? So, yeah, that was... Um, they really liked Shit's Creek because it was popular. Especially it was popular in America. And if something's mm -hmm. popular in America, it gives um, validity to something in Canada. Like, all our big Canadian films only got the attention after they were popular in America. Like the famous story is Going Down the Road, which is one of the Canadian classics that was made um, 
you know, kind of cinema verite, it only became popular when it went to America, won an award. And then they're like, oh, no, going down the road's good. Now it's good. Same thing with Nobody Wave Goodbye. I believe it won an award in America. And then in Canada, they're like, oh, no, wait, this thing has value. The Americans said it has value, so obviously it has value instead of just, like, lifting it up themselves. Mm, right. Sounds very familiar to me. I <laughs> am from South America. I'm from Peru. And obviously any it's a small country and whenever something gets attention in america or internationally it's a big deal like there's this movie the milk of sorrow that won the berlin film festival golden bear or something and mm-hmm. that became a huge thing and it's this kind of like austere independent drama that nobody would have gone to see if it hadn't won the international acclaim wait so i don't want to get too off topic but does peru have a very thriving film industry so when i was there mm-hmm. when i was younger not very much okay. but in it recently there's been a big uh push towards making kind of mainstream movies so like, like comedies, there used to be just <laughs> comedies yeah. comedies and horror and, and a little bit of horror movies mm. um right because it used to be all independent artsy stuff yeah. and nobody would go to see them and now then there was a big hit and now everyone's making all these comedies which i haven't seen a lot of them but most of them were pretty bad that's like a baffling idea i feel about local film industries is that there is like the dueling um uh, attitudes of like we want to be respected as our own thing so we're gonna make arty dramas and like independent films which then people don't really like and we want to avoid doing entertaining stuff when it's like why don't you just make entertaining stuff that it speaks to um you know not like the country or like it's just set in the country and it doesn't need to like when you talk about like nationalized cinema oftentimes they're like oh well it needs to be like hit these boxes to be nationalized it's like no just set it in the place that's all people want and if it's like that then they will want to watch it yeah totally but uh yeah so um i'm glad i could hijack this into uh, a canadian national cinema <laughs> and why it's not as successful as it should be podcast this is what the show is about this is this is our bread and butter so that's great but let's get into it then mm-hmm. let's talk about um john woo why don't you tell me a little bit about your personal history with him how did you discover his movies how do you get into so it so i remembered as I was sitting and watching Broken Arrow for this podcast. Broken Arrow was the first R-rated film that I ever saw. I uh, saw it when we rented it when we were at my stepmother's parents' house. It was like on a farm. We'd go to the video store, could rent whatever I want. I was like, oh man, I'm going to get this R-rated movie. And I remember seeing it and I don't think that aesthetically I, you know, realized like, mm, no, this is good action filmmaking. It was mostly like, whoa, it's rated R. Look at that guy he got hit by the <laughs> helicopter blade and his chest exploded in gore. Whoa, this is what cinema can include? And I think afterwards, when I got into like horror films, which were the first things that kind of made me obsessed with cinema, I was on these forums and somebody mentioned like, oh, you know, they really like John Woo films. So the next time we went to the video store, me and my brother, we had like a certain number of videos we could rent. We decided to rent The Killer and Hard Boiled and we watched them and we were just blown away. That was like my entry, I feel, into like Hong Kong action cinema like that. Never went back since then. That those aesthetics, those are so pure right from the get-go, The Killer and Hard Boiled, that like I was in. It was something like I had never seen before and I wanted all my action cinema to be like that from that point on, which was definitely a hurdle that i had to get over because i need to learn how to appreciate different kind of action cinema that isn't as bad balletic or well choreographed or edited or shot there are other things to enjoy as well right so john woo starts his career around the 70s i think in hong kong and then in 1986 is when he has a better tomorrow which is the kind of his breakthrough movie right yeah people forget that like for years and years and years john woo 
was what he always wanted to be. And he would always talk about this after he became the action god. Is that like He's like, I want to be a journeyman director. I want to be able to do like whatever I want. And it doesn't always have to have action stuff. Like he did a film where like uh, a Dean Sheck, I believe, played Charlie Chaplin. Um, he did like really goofy, zany um, Zuckerbrother-style uh, comedy. Like, I forget. There's one like To Hell with the Devil. There's another one with Tiger in the title. And eventually he got to A Better Tomorrow, which was produced by Troy Hark. And there, that style was so, um, you know, on its own, singular, that people were like, no, give us more of that. And he's never really been able to step back from that. And anytime he's tried, the little hints of that style make people go, Ugh, I just wish he had done that instead. Because, <laughs> like, he was going to do a musical starring Hugh Jackman for a while. And that felt oh, really? Yeah, a gangster musical. That would have been fun. Yeah, I would have loved to see that. Um Right, so so basically, I guess then a better tomorrow, which is this kind of gangster mm-hmm. movie, uh, became such a huge hit, and the style was so specific that he got pigeonholed into that, huh? Yeah, and because he was just really good at it too. Like you can feel that, like this is the stuff that he really likes to make. But like you look back and he did like Chinese opera films, like he did everything. And mm-hmm. I mean, it must be a bit of a bummer for him that like. They're like, well, that's what we want from you. And he's so good at it. Of course, that's what we would want. It's like, no, no, no. Do that thing that that we like. Not this other thing that you're trying to do. This is bad. What a waste of time. Give us people diving in slow motion. And I'm sure he's like, what else do you want from me? Like, I gave you hard boiled. Like, this is the best that you could possibly get with this stuff. What else do you want? Right. Yeah. So let's get let's get into hard boiled then a little bit. Because I ask you... uh, I, I when I asked you to come to the podcast, I said like we should probably watch like a movie that he made in Hong Kong and one in U- in the U.S. and you suggested Hard Boiled as the Hong Kong one. And when I was a kid, I didn't particularly like gun movies because mm-hmm. I still kind of feel like guns aren't super cinematic for me. You know, it's not as spectacular as like a kung fu fight or like a chase sequence or something like that just people shooting i feel like even in john woo films though you still feel well, that that's way? what i was yeah that's what i was gonna say that yeah. then i saw hard boil i saw john woo and i was like oh this is like exciting well because like gun movies usually in american cinema it's like someone firing a gun so you see like the one on them and then maybe like uh the reaction of that gunfire and it's like okay like what else can we do mm-hmm. so wait when did you see john woo films then um uh, not uh, might have, <laughs> might have been like about no 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 it was like more like eight eight years ago okay. or so so it's been a while but it I was like a teenager or, mm. or I was older I was like maybe my early twenties and so when you saw that those movies you're like whoa like this kind of gun cinema I, I think that you know when you watch a John Woo film maybe the like when people couldn't imagine you could do that with guns because it's like oh that's not realistic why would anybody do that and it's like it doesn't matter it's a movie like if it's within the logic of what's happening that's what's enjoyable about it right. So, yeah, so how would you describe that style? What is it? What is different about what he's doing that, that makes it so special? Well, I think that you could, like, break it down to just, like, very practical concerns. Like, his gunfights are very acrobatic. It's about the push and pull between usually two people doing a gunfight. Or if you have, like, group shots, it's about navigating that space. It's about obstacles. Like, you're running out of bullets. Or you have to mm. dodge out of the way. And while not realistic within any kind of, you know, real-world um, reality, it is 
believable when you see it play out on screen because he has such formal control over what he's doing through the use of, you know, just stunt performers, the actual acting that is going on, the editing, the camera work, all of that is coming together to, you know, coin the thing that people call his action scenes as the bullet ballet, where it's like a mm. dance sequence. All these things interplaying with each other, creating a kind of, you know, roller coaster of emotion. That it's not someone is firing a gun and then you are seeing the reaction to those bullets hitting things. It's also about people dodging, people kind of moving out of the way. Just the act of what you're seeing is just beauty in motion on screen. And that's, nobody does what John Woo does. Any person that tries to imitate it is often like, I think this is what it is. People hold two guns, right? And they never quite get there. <laughs> like if you look at the gunfight in The Matrix, that is an amazing mm -hmm. gunfight. It is like baby time compared to anything that John Woo has done. <laughs> right, because there is something very... Uh, well, the violence is one thing, right? Like mm -hmm. he, I think in Hong Kong sp especially, he's able to like, you know, shoot a person with like 40 bullets and there's blood everywhere and, and the bullet marks. And, and also he makes a spectacle out of it. I feel like every uh, beat, he really works into making it uh, feel very unique and special and for for you to notice it and like you said not realistic but like almost like maximalism you know yeah that's exactly what it is it's like how can you take the idea of someone being shot which is a horrifying thing and make it like a tableau of like the person's like scrunch face the giant squids going off the blood flying in slow motion in the air and like this is not right. realistic and like guns are bad i hate guns ban all guns we don't need them but man do i love john woo movies which is like that's the gulf between what is being portrayed on screen that as a viewer i can you know consciously understand that this is not real this would never happen but to see it portrayed in this way using these tools to have these effects that's what i find very engaging mhm mm so why did you pick hard boiled as uh, as one of the movies so i picked hard boiled because John Woo has gone on record saying this, that this was his ticket to America. He wanted to make Hard Boiled be essentially a, uh, you know, demo reel for mm. uh, coming to America and to make movies. Which is really funny is that, like, it's, it's akin to making, like, the greatest piece, work of art, to get, like, a job at a hot dog stand. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> right. Because, like, like I think Hard Boiled is probably the... Um, best action movie of all time. If someone said like, what's the best action movie of all time? I'd be like, hard boiled. And I know people have argued. They're like, Oh, what about like the predator or die hard? And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm talking about action movies, hard boiled. Like you watch that like 45 minute climax, one that you don't really get numb to that. There's enough creativity and gags there that you are engaged the entire time through this paper thin narrative. That makes it the best action movie of all time. That's why I want to talk about this. And then you could talk about, uh, Broken Arrow was the other one that we picked, which is him kind of fitting himself into the box of like, okay, my last movie, Hard Target, was too much John Woo. How do I modify myself to be within the context of what American cinema audiences expect? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So before we move on to Broken Arrow, Hard Boiled, like you said, and I think a lot of people would agree, it has been called by a lot of people. People agree it's the greatest yeah. action movie of all time. And I was trying to figure out, and I kind of agree because I see it and I'm like, this movie's awesome. Mm. But like I, for this podcast, especially, I was trying to figure out what is it about it that makes it so good. And for the people listening who might not know, Hardball is the story about this kind of like cop. Tequila played by Chai Young Fat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's kind of like this hard-boiled cop and then there's this other cop played by Tony Leung who's like undercover and they're trying to take down the triads. And it all builds up to this climax set at a hospital um, 
that like Justin said it's like a 40 minute sequence in which, which is like full of action and and it's very creative because they're also like trying to evacuate the people from the hospital and, and there's a lot of babies there so they're trying to like get the babies out <laughs> yeah. of it the cover of hard boiled the hong kong poster is just chang fat holding a baby in his hands and a shotgun in the other <laughs> exactly so that in itself is just great that's a great idea for a climax but also there's more about it because like you said you don't get tired of it even if though it's a 40 minute minute sequence and it's one of the greatest sequences i've ever seen of action so um do we have any ideas of what how he makes it work uh i think he structured it probably like a bunch of songs like it's like it's, it's weird to say like it's a greatest hits album because it's not really but every sequence is structured of like okay this is the sequence here's the beginning the middle the end and then we'll let it play and then we'll move on to the next one and that's how the film works and that's why hard world is a great movie that if you just cut out sequences this is usually like a negative where you're like oh what but it doesn't work within the rest of the context of the movie but in hard world it works like like just think of the scene where mad dog philip kwok rides it on his bicycle uh bicycle oh that'd be great no when he, I think he's on the dirt bike and he just kills a bunch of people. Not narratively, this serves no purpose because it's just watching a bunch of people die. Like and but as a viewer, it is so engaging and the way that you see it play out, like he rides in, he like skids the motorcycle. I think it like rams into somebody as well. He's all over the place. Right. It is just a tapestry. it's like poetry of violence that you're seeing on screen. But mm-hmm. it's not reveling in the violence, I feel, in the sense that like you know, John Woo has talked about that he's not a gun guy either. Doesn't like guns. Like, he doesn't own any guns. But he likes, I think, that the destructive effect that a gun can have on human bodies, the environment. Like, there's joy in watching a mailbox shoot. One of the greatest shots of all time appears in Hard Boiled. And it's uh, Charon Fat Stuntman uh, diving across a wooden dock and behind him a uh i don't know what it is it's like a sign or a box explodes towards the screen right oh that shot is so good and i think about it and it just brings a smile to my face seeing it on screen and to break down like why i i like that so much like what is special about that right it's destruction which all human beings love even if you disagree with it like seeing something destroyed when you get angry you're like i want to break something it's like why is that it's because there is like a cathartic like this is a space that is controlled and I can bring, you know, change it to my will. There's also like the danger of someone jumping in front of that and it exploding right behind them that you're seeing this happen on screen. And also all of it working together where you're like, oh, this is beautiful because you're not used to seeing that. And what you're seeing seems to be captured in a moment that will never be recreated again. Hmm. So what you're saying about John Woo and, and his opinion about guns and, and action movies and all of that makes me feel think of him as kind of like this kind of cursed guy who's like cursed to make this movie <laughs> but you know he and, loves action scenes though like people would say that when he's on set like he wouldn't wear um earphones because he likes the sound of guns going off but mm. like guns themselves he's like i don't like them like like you know john milius is a gun nut he loves guns he probably likes going down to the firing range and doing that and i think that's like the idea of power and having the power in your own hands and from indications of John Woo, maybe someone will say differently, like, that's not something that he really enjoyed. I'm the same way. Like, if somebody said, you can make an action film, I'd be like, get me every gun you get. Get me shotguns, get me machine guns. I'm going to do the biggest action scene ever. I would never own a real gun. Doesn't mm-hmm. really interest me. Why would, why would I want a gun? Yeah, and and I agree with that. And I find that kind of uh, strange and kind of fascinating that I think people from the outside might think of, like, how can you, like, watch all these violent movies and, and not be a violent person, you know? Like, um... Is it that we are, like you're saying, kind of finding the catharsis in the movie so we don't 
so that's it or yeah i, I mean at, at the same time like like if we didn't have that movie we would be like i gotta somehow uh, you know have that catharsis <laughs> one way or another and i don't think i would like i love sports movies too uh i love boxing movies i would never watch boxing i love martial arts films why would i watch mma that seems brutal i don't want to see people get hurt like that like people hmm. could say there's a contradiction to that because like i love crazy stunts where it's clear stuntman got injured but like i well. don't want to watch it live and they're like why would you like one or the other and i'm like ah, it's different but you're right like it is it is interesting that like i would really like this one thing but in its real life like i don't like to see that like i don't want to yeah. see people get like beaten up that's that doesn't sound fun to me no, it sounds horrendous, but in, in, in a John Woo movie, it's it's fantastic. Show it, yeah. 30 squibs, 40 is even better. Just like have them all <laughs> go off on the person. Okay, so that's so he makes Hard Boiled. Yeah. Um, and I think it didn't get that well good of a reception no, in didn't. Hong Kong. No, it did not get a good reception. I don't remember if The Killer got that good a reception either. People just want like a better tomorrow. Like they're like, please oh, make yeah. a better tomorrow. Like he made a better tomorrow too under duress. He did not want to make that film, and you can tell when you watch it. Uh, <laughs> other than the action scenes, everything is pretty lame. And a better tomorrow three, he didn't even make it. Troy Hark, uh, his producer, went off and directed that himself. And then Hard Boiled, he yeah, it wasn't a big hit. It took a long time to shoot as well, and I think it was a pretty big budget production. That's an interesting one. That like Hard Boiled, I didn't know this, but they actually shot the opening in the tea house. And then cut that scene together, speaking of songs, and then went to the film market to get money to make the movie based on that sequence. Oh, and like, wow. Like, look at this. And on the... I don't know if this has ever been transferred on any North American or releases. On the French DVD, Christopher Gaunt, the director of Brotherhood of the Wolf, go through the first edit of the sequence, which is different than what ended up in the final version. Because, like, they went back hmm. after they had shot that, raised some money went to go finish the film and then they like went back and re-edited that slightly. I think that's fascinating to know that's how it was made, especially when you watch the film and you like it was spread out over a very long amount of time. Like the Tony Lung character in one draft of the script was supposed to be like poisoning babies or something like that. Oh, <laughs> like wow. that was his character. Yeah. That definitely changed in the final version. That's crazy. But also like you see that sequence and how do you not give money to that movie, right? I mean, this is like the the contradiction of like being a filmmaker at any point in time. Why does John Woo have to make a sequence to prove to people that he can shoot an action scene? Like, watch The Killer, watch Better Tomorrow, watch even Hero Shed No Tears. And it's like, wow, this guy can do it. But instead he has to, again, raise money to prove to people he can do it. Like, maybe he lost it over the last month. Maybe he forgot how to do it. It's like, ah, oh, man. And that happens when he gets to America, where people are like, oh, no, 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 we don't want what you do. We want it the American way. <laughs> So, do you know, did Hard Boil help him come to America, or did had they noticed him already? Or I don't think it did help him uh, come to America. I think, from what I've been able to read, one of the people who was his big champions was Sam Raimi. He's an executive mm. producer on Hard Boiled, which explains why Ted Raimi's in Hard Boiled, as a guy who's like, I don't got no change, man! <laughs> Great sequence. Um, and so Sam Raimi was his big kind of like, um, you know, pro take John Woo. Because I think the problem is, listen, executives, most of them, mm, the majority of them, probably pretty dumb, right? And so they watch these foreign films and they're like, ah, no, gross. I don't want this, especially entertainment. Like we don't mm -hmm. like America is not known for bringing over um, like uh, populist directors from their yeah. home countries to America to make populist entertainment. They're known to bring 
art house directors and then force them into a populist frame like, oh, Jean-Pierre Genet made Delicatessen? Come, let's make Alien 4 Resurrection. Right. Like, that's what happens all the time. Yeah, and we, and we just did an episode about uh, Bollywood movies, and that's right. another thing of, like, we don't bring... I mean, they play here, but, like, they're not uh, covered or they're not, like, in the, in the magazines or people that talk about them. What happens is, especially executives, is, like, they don't get any attention, they don't care. But they're not going to go see, like, ooh, what's really popular in uh, Hong Kong? Let's bring that filmmaker over to America and, you know, let him do his thing because it's been very successful in Hong Kong. It should be successful in America. No, their logic is, like, they don't know what they're doing. Bring them to North America and we will push and punish them the entire way. Let them know, oh, yeah, we know what we're doing. Not you, who is an actual <laughs> artist and has been working in the industry for 30 years <laughs> like no right. you follow what we say probably like a young fail son who's like the president of paramount or something like that <laughs> so so what happened to jen Wu when he came over how was he punished well he came he came he made hard-boiled and i don't know if you've seen the work print version of it and he just did his thing he just did his john Wu over the top operatic divorced from reality thing and it kind You're of about hard target right right sorry did i say hard-boiled i meant hard target okay and um the studio Bach, they were like, what the heck is this? This is so over the top. We don't want this. And they actually recut the film, I believe against John Woo's wishes. And Sam Raimi came in and shot a bunch of new scenes, including the oh. climax of Hard Target, where the grenade gets dropped in Lance Henriksen's pants. That's a Sam Raimi reshoot that he did uh, over <laughs> That's about right. the John Woo, because it's much goofier than the rest of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's what they did. And I feel like after that, John Woo... Um, I don't know how Hard Target did financially. I'm going to say probably pretty well. Like, it wasn't a bomb or anything. I remember it being big on cable and VHS as well. Mm -hmm. And that movie came out in... I'm looking it up right now. Um, 1993. And it took three years for Broken Arrow to came out, come out. So that was a while. Like, it wasn't, like, right away. It's almost right. like he had to, like, you know, coddle um, some executives be like, no, 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 I'll play it safe this time. I won't go crazy like Hard Target, which is difficult for you to connect. I can make a Michael Bay-ish action movie. You know, I, mm. I can play to those levels. Right. And Broken Arrow, um, it's uh, John Travolta and Christian Slater. That's and right. John Travolta plays this kind of army uh, something, lieutenant or something like that, who like goes rogue and steals the nukes and, and wants to do like a terrorist kind of thing. And then Christian Slater is his buddy who needs to stop him. Yep, that's pretty much it. And it's like one long day movie. Like, it's just like nonstop. There's no downtime. Oh, yeah. And what do you think of Broken Arrow? I hadn't noticed the thing about one day. I watched it for the first time for this, actually. Mm. Um, I thought that this last sequence on the train is great. Mm. Like, the climax of the movie, I had a lot of fun. And the rest of the movie, I thought, was okay. I mean, Christian Slater, he's no Chow, Chow Yun-Fat, in my no. opinion, you know? Yeah, but that, well, why do you need Chow Yun-Fat? We got John Travolta just hamming it up throughout. <laughs> right, right. Yes, John Travolta does a really good job of hamming it up. But then I had also seen Face Off, and I knew that he could go even further with John Woo in terms of I feel hamming. like uh, John Travolta and Nick Cage and Face Off is kind of a reaction to this, being like, all right, we can have two hams. Just hamming it up throughout the movie. We don't need... I feel like it was a conscious decision here to be like, I want a straight man, which is Christian Slater. Mm -hmm. And I also want, like, you know, the big villain played by John Travolta. I think that Samantha Mathis, I was surprised rewatching it, how much she had to do in this movie. Yeah. That she was not just a damsel in distress. I actually really like this film. And I think I really like it because I can feel John Woo being like, 
listen, I'm not going to go as big as I would in Hard Boiled. I'm going to play within your rules, but I'm still going to be John Woo. Like, there was never a mm. moment that I would felt like, oh, somebody clearly came in and reshot this for him. Like, you feel his touch, his camera work, his editing all throughout this picture, which yeah. is what I really enjoyed. I can see that. I enjoyed it, too. I guess maybe it was just the the, the fact of seeing it back to back with Hard Boiled. Or... Uh, yeah, I mean, that is a painful decision. I did not, when you said you could pick an American one, I didn't pick Face Off because that is the most John Wooiest you can have, right? So it's like, that feels like he went, all right, Broken Arrow, it was a hit. I can make Face Off. It's going to be all my stuff. I, I wanted to talk about him within the context of like, all right, what what does he look like? Uh, you know, he, he can't spread his wings as wide as they go. Is there entertainment to be had there? And I believe this film was a hit. So obviously people reacted to it and they're like, we like what you're given. Doesn't feel too foreign to us. <laughs> like this is something that is palatable to like mom and dad. While even something like Face Off, they may go, oh, that's too much. Like, I can't yeah. really take that, which is why John Woo, after that, made Mission Impossible 2, where he's like, all right, I'm going to take myself down a level again, try to give you something, again, that's palatable. It's John Wooey, but it's not as big as something like Face Off or even Hard Target. Yeah. And I kind of lose track of John Woo after Mission Impossible 2. He makes a couple of the movies in America, right? He makes, I think, Paycheck with Ben Affleck. Ugh, awful. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not good. Um, that's too far away from, I feel, what his strengths are. And, uh, yeah, like a Philip K. Dick adaptation. Um, I mean, after Face Off, he made a TV pilot with Dolph Lundgren Blackjack from 1998. <laughs> where wow. uh, Dolph Lundgren plays an assassin that... The color white um, makes him, like, I think pass out or something like that, which, uh-oh. The color a, white, that's everywhere. Yeah, a gunfight in a milk factory. That's a big problem <laughs> for him. I think after MI2, um, John Woo, again, he gets that blank check before paycheck. He made Wind Talkers, and that was not well received. So that was oh, like, right. um, yeah, that's why I think he made Paycheck afterwards. And then Hollywood was like, we don't want anything to do with you anymore. And Paycheck was the last Hollywood movie. Right, and Wind Talkers, that was like a big a war movie, right? Yeah, it doesn't really work. Um, it's like a big, gigantic war movie. The director's cut is much, much better. Yeah, it's Nick Cage and Adam Beach. Um, Adam Beach is like a translator um, during uh, World War II for Navajo Indians, and like Nick Cage is the person that's taking care of him. And you can feel that like John Woo is a little bit worried about like, oh, I don't want to go too big. So it's like a little like middle ground. And unlike, unlike something like Broken Arrow, which I think works within like throughout, Wind Talkers is like a little bit all over the place where the real heavy drama doesn't work as well as it should. Because it's like very cliche, which like a lot of his other films are as well. But because they can reach that operatic level, you just get lost in the emotion. While Wind Talkers, mm -hmm. you never really get there, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So you're a big action movie guy you mm -hmm. love that kind of thing john woo we are in agreement is a great action director do you feel like he is like um how can i phrase this like is he like representative of what makes a, a in general a great action director and he's just the best at it or is he different from the rest i would say john woo is like the ultimate ideal of an action director like everybody is kind of trying to go for that. Now there's different forms of action. Like I wouldn't call um, Die Hard John Woo esque, but it still kind of is like a little bit like the gunfights, the interplay. Um, his stuff is very operatic as well, which like not every action movie needs to be to be able to work. 
I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of some other action movies I've liked recently. Like, I like Michael Bay stuff sometimes, and that is chaotic nonsense. That is not even close to John Woo-ish. That is a completely different emotion that he's trying to generate, and he's not trying to imitate the stuff that John Woo is doing. So it's a different mm-hmm. flavor. But my ideal is John Woo. Like, if I was to make an action scene or a gunfight, it would be, like, climbing that uh, Empire State Tower, trying to get to the top of that John Woo level. So it would probably be a pale imitation of that. How about you? Like, when you think of an action director or even action films, what are the ones that pop into your mind of, like, that is good action? Right. The question, the, the reason I was bringing up the question is because I tend to go more for, like, for example, like a Jackie Chan fighting mm. kung fu. Like well, that's I, different, though. Like I right, think like gunfight stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to say because in terms of gunfight, I feel like it's really just John Woo for me. Like I, I feel like in general, gunfights are really hard for me to mm-hmm. to get into. Even something like John Wick, which I enjoy a lot. I prefer the scenes where he's fighting without the guns. I agree. I feel the gun scenes get kind of repetitive, where it's like headshot, headshot. There's not enough. I mean, those directors, when they made those John Wick films, they didn't want to um, kind of go too operatic with it. They wanted to play realistic. And I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous in John Wick world, <laughs> but they wanted it to be grounded. And when you do that with gunfights, it kind of becomes repetitive, where it's like, yeah. all right, it's the same thing over and over again because you're not giving the film to break out within the bounds of like, oh, do something crazy. Because if you did that, that would kind of break the reality that you want people to kind of accept with John Wick. And I mean, that's the issue with those films. I'm trying to think of a good gunfight. Like, Heat has a good gunfight, right? Sure. I should watch more of Michael Mann. I, I've, I've never been super into him, but I know that a lot of people are, and I and I should check mm. that out. I think the problem, though, is, like, Heat can only have that one gunfight because within, again, I'm saying this word a lot, reality of the world, to have more than that, like, that would be unrealistic. So you can't really do that. And so, right. like, you only get that one. While in John Woo, people could have gunfights, like, three times a day. doesn't matter if they'll go on with their day afterwards. It's not realistic, but it's really fun to experience, which is why I think me and you enjoy it as much as we do. I was going to say that the thing about the more realistic approach is also not just that it's repetitive, but I feel like it becomes more off-putting to me because yes. it becomes the more realistic it is, the more you think of like actual violence. Whereas in John Woo, it's crazy that it's so much more violent in terms of how much blood and how many people get killed. But the fact that it's so extreme it's easier to take. It feels artistic instead of just, There's some funny examples of that where people are doing John Woo style gunplay in completely realistic settings like Edward Zwick's Blood Diamond, the Leonardo DiCaprio film. That is John Woo style gunfights. Leonardo DiCaprio's like flipping and turning and it's like, that is two different styles of like the, the, you know, the Blood Diamond trade. I want you to take this seriously. And then John Woo, like it doesn't meld well together. And I'm curious to know if like, do I feel that way just because it's in English? Like, if I could speak mm. Cantonese and I was watching it, would I be like, this is completely different? And I don't think so, because it's about the entire mood of a film, right? Like, a John Woo film is of a piece, while Blood Diamond, it's like, you want me to, you know, accept this realistic drama about, you know, yes. mining Blood Diamonds, and then watch the other Carpio, like, flipping and firing guns all over the place. You can't do both of them together. Right, because the John Woo Hong Kong films, they're always about this kind of, like, very tortured souls who have to like yeah uh kill people for a living or like they're cops and they can't find the bad guys or they're yeah and like innocence. brotherhood of like coming face to face with you know we're on opposite sides maybe we can see in the middle to get through this one thing that this will be the power that will get us to the finale which is probably one of them dying brutally <laughs> but <Right>. yeah and <laughs> like 
you know, I would you know, another thing about it, I haven't watched Blood Diamond in a long time, but like that's kind of what Edward Zwick is trying to do as well because it's also about um, you know, it's Leonardo DiCaprio and another fellow. I can never pronounce. Oh his yeah, name. Um, it's Jaiman Hansu. Yeah, there you go. And you know, they're like one of them's like a smuggler, or the other one's like, but it doesn't work because it's so dour and the drama is uh, trying to tell you that way you know what as i was saying the sentence i'm like but isn't that what bullet in the head is have you seen bullet in the head i haven't but i've heard you talk about it on, yes. on your podcast but that one is dour as well as about like vietnam and you see like they even recreate some like uh horrifying vietnamese i believe they do like the gun to the head thing you know that famous photo oh, right. of the person being assassinated i don't know it just feels different though it feels like more committed mm. than like hollywood product so yeah, I love Bull in the Head, though. That is, like, John Woo's, I think, masterpiece. <laughs> that, And it's also him, because it's kind of, like, telling his story of being a kid as well in, the, in that first part of that film. Yeah. And the killer has a pretty down ending as well. Yes. I watched that last night, and, it, and it's pretty depressing. I, I feel like Hard Boiled kind of stands out as having a very happy ending. Well, uh, originally, the way it was shot, um, uh, Tony Lung died. And uh, oh. according to John Woo, the, the casting crew kind of rebel rebelled and we're like no he cannot die in this movie he needs to survive <laughs> john was like fine he'll be on a boat at the end <laughs> john right. Wu, like in all of his movies and this is something i feel like he gets from like working on all the shaw brothers movies chang che like to be heroic at the end after you've gone through all of this you also have to die at the end mm-hmm. otherwise you come off heroically all of the blood and sacrifice that you've done it feels for not within the context of the story well, he also seems to come from a kind of like a religious background, oh, yes. right? And He's there's very churches in all of his movies, and I think he wanted at some point to become a, a priest or something like mm. that. So, yeah, he says he wanted to be a priest before he was a filmmaker. So, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess you know, in any kind of, especially, I guess it's. I'm always get these wrong. It's like a very um, Christian understanding of like sacrifice and. Um, you know, the only way for any kind of salvation is for you to die at the end of it by the hands of another. So, right. yep, that's what all his movies are about and going through pain and stuff like that. Bullets and you got to go through it and maybe you'll save the day, but then you die at the end. I haven't seen any John Woo movies since he left America. Do you know what he's been up to since? Because that's been a long time. Since I mean, I then. really liked uh, he did like a two part massive action film, Red Cliff. Uh, that was an adaptation of a uh, famous text in China. Um, and uh, it's fun. It's really good. It's long. And since then, uh, he did uh, his version of the Titanic called The Crossing, which I've never mm-hmm. even seen. People just said it wasn't good. And they said, like, it's a two-part movie. And the second part, supposedly the first 45 minutes, is a um, summation of the first one, which is really weird. So, like, it was always meant to be one movie, and they stretched it out. Then he went and made a movie called Manhunt in 2017 for a Japanese production company. And, like, it's all, like, a Japanese cast. And mm. I believe it's set in Japan. I really like that one. That's, like, a return to, like, his goof-em-ups. Like, you know, very flighty over-the-top stuff that, like, Manhunt is a movie that, like, after, uh, you know, Red Cliff and The Crossing, you're like, hey, he's not going to make these movies anymore. But then he did! And it's really fun. And since then, I feel... I remember when Manhunt came out in 2017. I heard John Woo was very ill. And it was probably going to be his last movie. But I guess he's still kicking. They keep talking that he's going to come back to America to do a remake of The Killer, but, like, an all-women remake of The Killer. Interesting. Yeah. No, John, we'll just do something else. You don't need to remake The Killer. (laughs) Oh, this is radically different. 
Do you feel like he still has it in him to make one last masterpiece? Yeah. I think Manhunt is tons of fun. He still got it. Like he just needs to surround himself as a crew that understands what he's doing and he can, you know, they can bring his visions to life. Then yeah, he's good. He just needs a crew there to do it. And they ain't going to do that in mainland China. Don't know if they're going to do it in America either. Probably. So yeah, he's in trouble there. And Hong Kong ain't making the kind of films that John Woo to have another masterpiece. He could make. He may not just want to make another masterpiece. He's like, I made hard boiled. What else do you want from me? Like another hard boiled. That ain't going to happen. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. You can't ask too much of a man. No, he's done enough. I mean, he's directed 40 films? Like, I think, yeah, let, let, let the poor guy rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so before we wrap up, um, I think that some of the people listening to this might not be super familiar with John Woo. So do you have any words for people who are trying to get into it or starting? Like, where do you start? Where do you go next? Watch The Killer, then watch Hard Boiled. If you don't like those movies, John Woo's not for you. Like, that's all. <laughs> like, you're not going to like anything. You're not going to watch, like, the pilot he shot for Canadian television of Once a, Th- a Thief and be like, mm, yeah, now this I like. Like, watch those two. Maybe watch Hard Target. That one's really fun. Like, maybe if you're afraid, you're like, oh, no, I don't know. Will it be too much? Hard Target's, like, a good entryway to that. And Face Off, I don't know, man. Like, when John Woo's firing on all cylinders, there's nothing better, so... How about you? Which one would you recommend if someone's like, I want to watch a John Woo movie? Well, for me, it was Hard Target. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Hard Boiled. Yes. When I watched that, it was like the one that I was like, this is incredible. I need to see more. Yeah. We're like, John, why do you keep putting hard in front of the name of your movies? It's confusing. You made them back to back. Yeah. And I've never seen Hard Target, but you made it sound a lot of fun. So I think I'm going to go check that out. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, I think he's in, yeah, he's in New Orleans. His name is Chance Dubois. As he explains, uh, my mother called me Chance because my mother took one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And it has um, Willier, uh, Wilford Brimley. He plays like a Cajun um, like bomb maker. He's like riding a horse, like firing a gun in the movie. Yeah, Lance Henriksen is the villain. His sub-villain is Arnold Vosloo, the mummy himself. Yeah, you got to go watch this movie. Um, everybody listening and you especially I'm pointing no one can see me do it (laughs) (laughs) I will don't worry I will Um, okay I I think that is pretty much it for the show do you have any last words about John Wood you'd like to to put out there no you know when you start the show as being like he's a master no one has done it better than him there's really nowhere else to go from there like it's like oh yeah this great gun scene where Chowing Fat like you know the way in the climax of Hard Boiled where the way it ends of like the guy on the ground and he fires his machine gun which causes an explosion and as Chowing Fat rolls on a table covered in dough and then it cuts to a close-up of like the dough flying up in the air as he rolls he then lands on his stomach skids so his gun's pointing at the guy's head and there's a, a beat he spits fires the gun and then his white his face covered in white flowers just splattered in blood if that's not one of the greatest action movie moments of all time like i don't know what to tell you the person listening to this well there you go very yeah. vivid description of an amazing moment so mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show um i mentioned Thanks a lot of the me. stuff that you do at the top but do you want to say anything else for the people where they can find you and your work something like that no that's pretty much it i think we've, we've talked enough about me yeah there's a lot of stuff oh actually no uh, i lied i'd be humble and then i go wait wait no wait there's <laughs> one more thing uh subscribe to my youtube channel film trap and that will uh, influence me to make more videos because yeah 
videos are harder than doing podcasts. So it's, sometimes it takes a little bit of effort for me to like pull that camera out, sit down, set up a light. That's crazy. <laughs> when I do podcasts, I could be shirtless right now. The listener couldn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we'll have links for all of uh, Justin's many projects in the show description, the show notes. So make sure to check those out. Once again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you, especially about John Woo. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, keep watching John Woo films. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And that's our show. Thanks again to Justin DeClue for coming on to talk about the great John Woo. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find more listeners. But more importantly, why don't you tell someone about it? After all, word of mouth is the best way to support an independent creative endeavor such as this one. Thanks again for listening. Next week we'll have something a little bit different. There'll be some changes coming to this podcast. And I hope you'll enjoy them. I know I will. Now here's a little music. And after that, a little more Justin DeClue. So, Justin, one of your many podcasts is No Such Thing as a Bad Movie, which is one of my favorites because I think there's a lot of people who like watching bad movies to make fun of them, but I feel like that's not really the vibe of the podcast. It's a little different, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that when people get into bad movies, it's a thing of, like, control. You especially get into it when you're younger, when you don't have much control in your life, and to watch something that aesthetically and thematically you know is bad and is done badly, that when you and your friends can laugh at that, it gives you a sense of, like, superiority over something. And, you know, it's completely understandable. Mm -hmm. And I like all kinds of movies, especially ones that are considered bad. And so No Such Thing as a Bad Movie came about because I was like, all right, I know that people like to listen to bad movie podcasts. It's easy. (laughs) Usually they don't need to invest themselves in the movies themselves. Like I listen to the flop house. I don't watch every movie that they talk about. Right. So I knew that like important cinema club, which was the podcast I was doing with Will Sloan. I could understand there's a learning curve there that people may go like, Oh, this filmmaker, I don't know who this is. I don't want to listen to them talk about it 25 minutes, but these movies that they're talking about and no such thing as a bad movie. Ooh, that sounds like fun. And then, so I thought about doing it with my pals, Colin and April, and I knew they would be really good at that. Cause they are like, so into that scene. Like, I mean, Colin Cunningham is on Red Letter Media and April Atmansky is just like, she watches all the YouTube shows. Like when I would walk into their house, <laughs> they'd just be sitting there like watching the bad movie or YouTube shows. So I was like, all right, they'd be perfect to talk about it. But I don't want to do just another bad movie show. How can I approach it in a different way? So basically the gimmick I came up with is that we all have to say something that we liked about the movie, mm-hmm. no matter how bad that it is. Right. And I really love that about the show because, yeah, 
uh, I listen to it and a lot of the time I don't watch the movies, but a lot of the mm-hmm. time also I listen to it and after listening, I'm like, I should check this movie out. And that happened to me, for example, with Hudson Hawk. I listened to that episode and then I was like, this sounds crazy. I got to check this out. And I had a great time watching it. Oh, I'm very glad you checked out Hudson Hawk. I mean, me and Colin are very glad. April, no, she did not like Hudson <laughs> Hawk. We just did The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, another Daniel Waters film this week. So buckle up for that one as well. <laughs> I mean, the it's the funnest ones that I do on that podcast are the ones that are like really low budget, terrible. I mean, you know, Black Devil Doll from Hell and having to make Colin and April watch it and then discuss it after. Because I think there's like a lot to talk about there. The ones that are the most miserable experiences for me personally are all the Patreon episodes because they're all new movies. Mm. So it's like, ugh, like I don't know, it's bad. <laughs> we don't have to pick anything <laughs> that we like about it in the new, in the Patreon episodes. And also the ones that I really like, like Hudson Hawk, that people have just dismissed out of hand because they're like, oh, you know, society decided these are bad. But then the podcast gives us an opportunity to be like, oh, you know, there are stuff that may not work, but there's other stuff that really does. Let us talk to you about it. And then hopefully if it interests you, you'll go watch it like you did. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really appreciate about it. And also about your work in general, because you've written two books, um, one about Albert Pyun and one about modern media, which are both have that vibe of trying to find these things that have been maybe forgotten or misunderstood or, or dismissed and trying to approach them from a kind of serious way, which is kind of funny, right? Like the idea of modern or Motern um, is kind of like writing a Hitchcock Truffaut book, but it's about these guys who make backyard movies, which I love. I, and I love the book. It's so much fun. Yeah, I think that like both the Albert Pune book and the Motern on Motern one came about the fact that like, I, especially the Pion one, like love this filmmaker and find that there's a lot of value there that I am interested in passion and creative process and what led people to these decisions. So it was really easy to write because I'm like, I really love this thing. If I was given by like an editor, it's like, you got to write about this. And I'm like, well, I don't even like this. They're like, too bad. You got to write it. Find the good about it. I'd be like, oh man, this is going to be rough. <laughs> but like, because I don't, I just do it myself. It was very easy. My turn on my turn. Like those guys should be much more popular than they are. And it always feels like they're right on the cusp of like breaking through and people being like, oh, don't let the rubies get you is great. Like um, I talked to Matt Farley and I was like, Matt, would you want someone who like makes fun of movies? Like uh, what is it called? Um, like the Paul did... Shear one. Yeah. How did this get made? How did this get made? Like, would you like them to do it? Cause they'll probably make fun of you. They may not like approach it on the same level that you want a perfect audience to approach it to. And he's like, no, I don't care. As long as it gets out there, as long as a whole bunch of people. And it, it, it's just taking that one big podcast to do it. And uh, that would, you know, construct a whole new audience for them. Right. And obviously, he loves self-promotion. So Oh, he loves it. Well, you know what's funny is he doesn't. Oh, I've really? talked to him about it. He's like, I hate it every time I have to get on Twitter and do it. But at the same time, I know I have to. So it's like that um, kind of duality in Matt Farley in always brings a smile to my face. Oh, I, I didn't know that. That actually makes me feel much better because I also struggle with kind of, you know, tweeting to self-promote my stuff and that kind of thing. Um, that's funny because uh, we did a podcast for, for my other... Uh, I do a show, it's called Criterion Project, and we did an April Fool's episode about Don't mm-hmm. Let the Rubies Get You. And we called Matt Farley on the show and we were like, hey, is it cool if we call you and you can be in the show for a second? And he was like, yeah, I love it, you know, like, but... Oh, he loves, like, attention on himself and, like, people interacting with him or telling him that he's great. I think that where... 
and if he listened to this, he would argue otherwise, is that like putting yourself out there all the time, sometimes with nothing coming back. Mm-hmm. And because his career for a long time was doing that, he made like five movies and like nobody cared. Like no one wrote reviews, film festivals wouldn't. And it's nice now that like people are telling him that they like his stuff, are obsessing with his work, because that's how he designed it. And in the perfect world like that's how his work would be interpreted and i think it will be from this point forward and mm. this is just talking about his movies he makes so much music too and that's a whole other can of beans right right well that yeah that brings so true to me as someone who like you know is doing these podcasts this stuff and then putting them out there and then fe- a lot of time feeling like the void yeah you're exactly like, is anyone listening and you can see how many people are listening you're like man how many people are listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah how do you deal with that I found actually a lot of inspiration mm. in, in Farley and especially in Local Legends. When I watched it, I was like, oh, I feel so seen by this movie. So uh, like in general or like podcast wise? Uh, I don't know. Whatever you want to talk to. Like podcast wise, I did podcasts before I did the Important Cinema Club. I did uh, the Laser Blast Film Society podcast, which I believe has mostly been scrubbed from the Internet. There's an episode here or there. And that one was fun because it's just hanging out with my friends after film screenings and we would just talk. I didn't even edit those. I would just put them (laughs) online, assuming that no one's really listening to them, not really caring. And after that, I uh, did Loose Cannons with my pal Matthew Kumar. And like the link between both of them and Important Cinema Club and all these other ones is I'm just hanging out with my friends. Mm -hmm. I get to talk about stuff because in reality, even when like, you know, there wasn't a big pandemic. People often, because there's so much like input coming in all the time, they don't just sit and talk because it feels weird now where you're just staring at each other. You're just talking <laughs> like hours can go on. Uh, some friends I do it with, but like others like me and Matthew, like we never just sat and talked for 90 minutes, like in his apartment about stuff. So Loose Cannons gives us an opportunity to do that, especially on a particular subject. Instead of just like, oh, we mentioned this, then we bounce around. Right. Same thing with Support Cinema Club and all the other stuff. So as long as you're doing it with friends and that's like why you're doing it then it's fun some podcasts i've done and they've become work and i'm like well i don't want to do this anymore it feels like work and Mm. unless someone is paying me enough money to do it which is not happening then i'm not going to continue doing it so if you can find that like fun thing then you got to keep doing it as far as movies man it's hard i want to keep doing movies and like i will but there's always a voice in your head being like "Eh, but nobody really cares and you should put a lot of time and money in that stuff and it's like yeah i know i wish i could get like matt farley's blood and like injected in my veins and i'm like let's (laughs) do it let's go come on who cares yeah i get that that's actually great advice uh thank you for saying that um i have one last question loose cannons is that available anywhere Oh, yeah. If you search Loose Cannon's podcast, uh, where me and Matthew Kumar went uh, chronologically through the filmography of Cannon Films. Did we do 100 episodes? We got pretty close. We were doing it for a while. And people are always asking, like, why did Loose Cannon's end? Like, what happened? And it basically just came down to Matthew moved away. He moved to L.A. And we Mm. did a few through the Internet. And it's I mean, it's funny to say now, considering I edit the two podcasts I do through the Internet. It is such a pain in the butt. I'm sure you do this too. You have to edit this episode through the internet. Mm-hmm. And it's tough, like, like not making... Like, if there was a little bit of money, I could be like, yeah, this is fun. But there was, like, nothing with Loose Cannon. It was just the fun of me and Matthew talking. And it wasn't the same when we were doing it through the internet. Because we used to riff. We used to make ourselves laugh until we were crying. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the same when we did it that way. Like, it wasn't like a, you know, academic discussion where we're breaking down the film. It was mostly a, an excuse to riff. So, yeah. If you search Loose Cannon's podcast, let me check here. Um, it used to be on that shelf. They hosted it for us. And yet, still there, all of our 84 episodes that we've done. Wow, great. So I can't wait to dig into that. Very echoey. We would record in his living room on one uh, Yeti mic. That's what I'll say. (laughs) 